I don't know if you know the story about, uh, well, you must know the story about Belling the Cat, right? You know, it's a story about this house with all these mice, and they feel threatened all the time because they're also a cat in the house, and they never know when the cat might spring out and, and get one of them. So they finally have a convocation, and they d- discuss all the possible plan of action. Finally, somebody comes up with a great idea. Let's just put a bell around the neck of the cat, because then every time the cat moves, you hear the bell ringing. We'll know where it is, and we can, you know, run and hide and be safe. And everybody cheered, and they voted, and it was unanimous. <laughs> And then, of course, came the question, uh, excuse me, but uh, who's going to hang the bell on the cat? (laughs) And that was the end of the story right there, right? Well, that sort of happened to me this morning, coming into this morning. A few weeks ago, Audrey and I sat down to talk about what would the summer look like, and she came up with a brilliant idea. Well, there there are 13 weeks we have in this summer season, and there are 13 chapters in the book of Hebrews, so why don't we just go through one chapter each week? But not try to dig out everything Hebrews is teaching, because it's a pretty deep book. But instead, go through and try to figure out what we're we're calling as a subtitle here, Snapshots of Who Christ Is Today as the Ultimate Fulfillment of Our Lives. And so that was a great idea. We were on our way, and as it ended up, I got assigned chapter 6, and that's when I have to bell the cat, because chapter 6 is probably one of the most controversial portions of Scripture anywhere. It's been debated even going back to the early church fathers. There's still no full agreement in the body of Christ on some portions of the chapter we're about to read. So I thought, oh no, and I'm the one that's got to preach on this. (laughs) But fortunately, our theme was to dig out the things of Christ in each chapter so I could sort of avoid the controversies as I'm about to do. But we need to be aware of the controversies because there is a kernel of truth in there for all of us, wherever you might come out on those thoughts. So as I read, don't be watching for the controversy so much, but you'll be aware of it, I think, where there could be controversy. But please join me in seeing if you can figure out where some... I'm going to share with you out of this one little chapter 12 more snapshots of who Jesus is to add to what we're calling our photo album of the heart. We're already up to about 25. I'm going to give you 12 more, and we're only up to chapter 6. So we're discovering together things, and I mean together, I'm learning too, things about the Lord Jesus that I'm sure for some of you are brand new. And all of it adds up to doing for us exactly what the writer of Hebrews was wanting to do for his audience, and I'll talk about that in a moment. See if you can find the snapshots. They're not as obvious as they have been in some of the other chapters, but they're there. They're sort of hiding in plain sight. See if you can find some of them. Here we go. Therefore, he writes, let's move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. Because it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and, and, and the powers of the coming age, and then who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance, to their loss. They are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Now, land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom uh, it is farmed, that land receives a blessing from God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed 
and in the end it will be burned. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and, and patience inherited what has been promised. For example, when, when, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Now, people swear by someone greater than themselves, but this oath confirms what is said and, and puts an end to all of its arguments because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, and so he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope that is before us may be greatly encouraged, for we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. And he's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, now, there are some warnings in here, and we don't want to just pass them over and ignore them, because they're warnings in different parts of the book of Hebrews. Because, you see, the writer of Hebrews is sort of what we call a happy warrior. <laughs> um, he, he, he's fighting a battle for us and getting us into the battle because the road to following Christ is full of lots of challenges to that very direction we're headed. But he's a happy warrior. Why? Because all through the book of Hebrews, what he is doing as a counterpoint to all the things that might pull us away from Christ is to give us a much larger vision of Christ that is so wonderful, so exciting, and so compelling, we will not be tempted to go any other direction. So in that sense, I would call him a happy warrior. You know, it's sort of like the interview that they did with a woman up in Vermont, oh, I think it was last Monday, um, she had escaped the flood. You know, the flooding has been going on in Vermont. Well, she told the story about how there was a knock at the door and the water was rising and the rescuers had come in their little boat and they said, you need to get out of here right now, get into this boat because in a moment your house is going to be wiped away and if, uh, you know, the, the waters are coming and, and, and you could die with it. And she's, she struggled with it, she said when she was interviewed afterwards. She sort of felt sobered and she felt angry and she decided, I don't need to do this. And, you know, but finally they convinced her that it would be much better to get in the boat and go. And now as she's being interviewed, she said, yes, I was sober, but now I'm full of gratitude because it saved her life. A warning can be a blessing. She was warned. If nobody had warned her, she would have been gone. But when she heard the warning, that wasn't really happy news. But the promise that the warning was to take her toward <laughs> was wonderful news. And she says, I end up with nothing but gratitude in my heart. That's sort of what the writer of Hebrews is trying to do here. He's trying to, to stir us up so that we end up in the right place in our walk with Jesus. And so uh, I come back to you today with the, where we ended last Sunday. If you don't mind, I'd like to read again that quote from Dr. John Piper. Uh, as you recall, I mentioned he was one of the pa leading pastor theologians of our nation. Uh, he's written many books that uh, influence Christian leaders around the world, happens to be a friend, and I know these words are exactly what he means. When John Piper writes, 
Either we are advancing towards salvation or we're drifting away to destruction. That sort of sounds like that woman up in Vermont, doesn't it? Drifting is mortal danger. If we do not point people to the inexhaustible riches of Christ so as to stir them up to go forward into more of Him, then we encourage drifting downstream where there will be shipwreck for the faith. So since there's no other option, <laughs> it's either press into more of Christ or you end up drifting, which for, like for that woman, she would have ended up drifting down a swollen river and she would have been gone. So when I look at the warning sections of this chapter, which we're not going to study because we could, we could spend a couple hours just on the warning section that we just read together, but if you would allow me, I'd like to summarize what the writer's trying to say to us in five little statements, and you can go back and search it on your own and see if you think I caught it or not. And with these five statements, I think there is no disagreement among anyone anywhere in the body of Christ. So here's how I summarize what the writer's saying here. First statement. Either pursue Jesus or repudiate Jesus. There's no center ground. If you don't pursue him, you're going to ultimately end up repudiating him. Number two, either fixate on Jesus, that is, make him the focus of your life, or fall away from Jesus. Again, no middle ground, one or the other. Number three, either savor Jesus, that is, really enjoy your relationship with him and savor him, or you will end up living a life that will shame him. Fourth statement, either cherish Jesus, loving him with all your heart, or you will end up crucifying him. I think what he means there, you'll end up joining the crowd that stood around the cross. You're a part of the, the crowd that called for the crucifixion. It's pretty sobering language, isn't it? It's right there, though. And the final of the, fifth, of the five statements is, you, uh, is that it's either more of Christ or it's disaster, and the choice is ours. But there is no middle ground. And that's why Piper says we got to stir each other up to go on into more and more of, the, of these inexhaustible riches we have in Jesus. Or what's the use of even calling him Lord at all? What's the use of saying I'm following? What's the use of coming here on a Sunday morning? And if we end up playing games with this whole thing, then, you know, the latter end is worse than it was at the beginning. I mean, we all have our props knocked out from under us. The audience, as you know, to whom this book is written, are Hebrew Christians at 60 AD. Persecution is breaking out against the church under Nero, the, the emperor of Rome. And these Jewish Christians are considering the possibility of retreating back into Judaism, of, of sort of becoming hidden Christians, silent Christians, and avoiding the persecution in doing so. They're having the props knocked from out from under them. We all have those experiences. It may not be persecution in a Roman Colosseum, <laughs> But we all have those experiences. You, you, you lose a marriage, you lose, lose a loved one, you lose an income, you lose your health. The props get knocked. This church has had the props knocked out from under it in these last few weeks in an extraordinary way, as you well know. So the question for the writer of the Hebrews, knowing where his audience is at and how they are struggling with whether to press on or not. He's written this whole book in order to encourage us to do nothing less than to go further with Christ than we've ever gone before, irregardless of how much 
it is shaking us. And so here in this chapter, as he's going to continue doing throughout the whole rest of the book, he gives us snapshots of who Christ really is today to show that he is the fulfillment of our lives and we should not want to go anywhere else but to him and into more of him. So like I said, I've come up with 12 snapshots. They are snapshots. We're going to look at each of them briefly. See if you're hearing anything that may be just a little new for you or at least a refresher course in your relationship with Christ. Snapshot number one. He says it right at the outset. The goal of your growth is Christ. He says you've got the elementary issues like building blocks. Now take them and build yourself on into maturity in Christ. It's exactly what Paul says in Colossians 1. He says, um, Christ I proclaim, teaching everyone and exhorting everyone that I may present everyone mature, complete in Christ. And then he adds, and to this end I strive with all the energy God will mightily inspire within me. In other words, he's sort of saying, boy, there is nothing more exciting I could be doing in my life than helping someone else grow in maturity to Christ. That is the goal of what my whole life is about, what their life is about. We ought to be doing that for each other not just letting the pastor try to do it on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Jesus is the goal of the Christian growth you and I are into right now if you belong to Jesus. Secondly, it says uh, that there's been enlightenment. Now, you know, there's a number of things he, t- he talks about here. He doesn't mention the name of Jesus, but you ask, where does it come from? Like when he says, you, you know, you've been, you've been enlightened where, where does that come from? Well, of course, that comes from Jesus. Like when he called Paul on the Damascus Road, he said, my assignment to you is to, to preach me all through the Roman Empire. And as you preach who I am, he says, you will turn people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. Jesus is all about enlightening us. And this word enlighten in the Greek is more than just giving us light. It's blinding us. It's sort of the word that means to blind us. You know, about, uh, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, a, a woman, a professor emerged from underground where she had spent three months doing scientific research on what happens to a person who's totally isolated in absolute dark under the ground. (laughs) I'm glad I don't have that assignment. But they talked about how she said when she walked out of that cave experience, she was absolutely blinded. Now, everybody's standing there waiting to greet her. It was just, you know, just normal sunlight to them. But for her, coming out of darkness, it was blinding light. We have all had that experience in one way or another. Sometimes it can happen multiple times in the life of any believer where Jesus reveals more of himself to us in the gospel and it seems like we're coming into the light again for the first time. He is is the, the daylight for our darkness. Third, he is heaven's greatest gift. It says that we've uh, tasted of, of heaven's gift. Incidentally, he uses the word tasted twice here. Now, we already talked about that a couple weeks ago, didn't we? In Hebrews 2, it says that Jesus has tasted death for every one of us. And we said that doesn't mean like going to a party and sampling an hors d'oeuvre and seeing how it tastes. It means that he has richly and fully experienced death for all of us. So if we belong to him, we actually will never die because he took it for us. In the same way here, it's talking about experiencing deeply, richly, experiencing the heavenly gift, which began the day you gave your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is heaven's greatest gift, isn't he? When it says God so loved the world, you know, we quote that so often. Think about it. God so loved the world, and he said, I want to give a gift. What can I give? And the only thing he had to give 
the best gift he could come up with was to give his son, the second person of the Godhead, to become our Redeemer. Boy, there's no greater greater gift any of us will ever receive. And Paul says, thanks be to God, who, uh, or, uh, when he says, uh, uh, the gift of God to us is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is eternal life, but it's only through Jesus Christ. He's the actual gift that makes that possible, which is why Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians 9, he says, thanks be to God for his, now watch the word, indescribable gift. There's no way I can really explain it. You know, you love it when you give a gift to somebody at a birthday party and they, they are profuse. Oh, I've always wanted this and so on. But we all know you never can come up with enough words to, to do what you should do because the person spent some time and money to... But with, with this gift, we'll never find enough words to say how much it means to us. And then the fourth snapshot is he's the focus of the Spirit. Now it says here we have shared in the Holy Spirit. The word shared in the Greek literally means come into intimacy with. We have come into intimacy with the Holy Spirit. Fine. What does that mean? Well, Jesus was very clear what that would mean. In John 16, in the upper room, hours before he was crucified, he said to his disciples, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and when he comes, he will not speak of himself. He will take everything that is mine and reveal it to you. The role of the Holy Spirit is to bring you and me into intimacy with Christ. That's what it means to share in the Holy Spirit. So Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3 for a group of Christians. He said, I pray that God will strengthen you by his Spirit in the inner being, he's, talking about, he's actually talking about a whole church now, in your inner being as a, as a people, that Christ may be at home among your hearts by faith. That's God's desire for this church, is that the Spirit have such freedom to work among us that every time we get them together, it's going to almost be like Jesus was here welcoming us. He was already here because he lives here in a sense because the Spirit is having such a wonderful opportunity to bring us into intimacy with Christ. That's what that snapshot is all about. The next snapshot says Jesus is the goodness of God. It says it's the goodness of the Word of God. What he means is everything God's Word talks about, of all the goodness God has to give, where does that all reside right now? Well, the answer is very clear as you study the Scripture. It resides in the heart of the living God, and that heart is Jesus himself. You know, when, they, when, when the refugees fled from Ukraine over into Poland at the beginning of the war, uh, the people, I heard a, even, uh, you know, a, a, an announcer on one of the new, news shows saying that the people of Poland are opening their homes to the refugees, but more than that, they're opening their hearts. And that has to be true after a year. I mean, you could take in somebody for a week, but when you now have that person in your home for a year, if, if, if it isn't your heart you've opened... <laughs> You're going to be suffering pretty badly with that situation. God has, has opened up all the goodness that he has by opening up to us his son. It's all embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this verse from 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, like newborn babes uh, crave pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. There's that word tasted. That's what he's using in Hebrews. Again, fully experienced. How do we experience the good? We ex every time Jesus does his work in our lives, we're experiencing more of the goodness that God's word promised he had for those who belong to him. All the goodness of God 
It's in Christ. And Peter says, go after it. Six, he is the power of the future. Oh, I could spend hours on this. In fact, in other audiences, I actually have. Jesus has gone into the future to bring it back to us. There's so many ways to talk about this. The power of the future is the person of Jesus himself. You know, what he is Lord of, ultimately he's Lord of right now. All the glory he will have, ultimately he has right now. All the powerful things he will do at the end of all things when he brings everything under his feet for subjection. He's working in our lives with that same power at this very moment. When the Bible says that you've been crucified, dead, buried, and raised with Christ and put in heavenly places with him, that's really talking about the end of history when all things are consummated. And, and Paul says, you get to get into some of that right now because you belong to Jesus. I love that verse, which I often share with people. I don't know if I shared it with Audrey during her sickness, but I often share with people when they're experiencing physical difficulties, that wonderful verse in Romans chapter 8 where Paul says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. You see, part of what we might call the healing miracle of God is simply taking resurrection and bringing some of that right into the present and instilling it in even in this mortal, this body that will someday die. He is willing to share some of his resurrection life even at this point in time. Oh, there's so much to talk about. Jesus is the power of the future, and he's come right here and now with all of it. And uh, uh, number, number seven, he is the blessing of Abraham. You know the story of Abraham called out of Ur to go to another place. God said, and you go, I'm going to bless you, make you a blessing to the families of the earth. You know that story. And here we are thousands of years later, and the blessing of Abraham is all over the earth right now through his descendants. Not only physical descendants, but ultimately through his spiritual descendants, which are those of us sitting in this room. But what... What the Bible wants us to understand is that all the blessings through all the individual descendants are only a little, little foretaste of, let's a hint of, what the ultimate blessing is. And the ultimate blessing of Abraham is that through the loins of Abraham, ultimately, came our Lord Jesus Christ after the flesh. He was born of a virgin, but he was born of a Hebrew virgin. <laughs> He's the blessing of Abraham. And this is exactly what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16 on the screen. Incidentally, if you want a good commentary on John 3, 16, try Galatians 3, 16. In fact, you go through and study all the 3, 16s of the Bible. It'll blow you away how they all sort of work together. It's amazing. But in that case, that's just a little side benefit. Anyway, here in Galatians 3.16 it says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Now, Scripture does not say and to seeds, uh, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. And that was an important word to be spoken now to these Hebrew Christians who are thinking about running from Jesus and going back into Judaism so they won't get persecuted. He's saying, wait a minute, when you come to Jesus, you've come to what Abraham, what your forefather, this is what he was all about. This is what God's always been about. And now it's here and now it's yours and you're going to leave it and go back into the religion? No, that's not the religion of Abraham. This is the religion of Abraham because his seed has come and all the promises now are fulfilled in him. That's, that's what he's doing here, in case you didn't catch it in this chapter. But then, man, he backs it up. 
by saying, and if you wonder if God's going to be faithful to what he's promised you, let me remind you, he said, that when God made his promise, which ought to be enough considering the character of God, that he's perfect, that he's righteous, that he's faithful, that he never lies, that ought to be enough. But God knew we probably need a little more help, so he took an oath. But the writer says he couldn't swear by anybody greater, which is what you do with an oath usually, because he is the greatest. So he took an oath to himself, by himself. So you can, you can trust everything God has for you in Jesus. First, because of who he is, and he will not fail. But also because he's given you an oath. And in two things it says, there's no way God can lie. You see, when you go in a courtroom and you sit down in the witness chair and you lay your hand on the Bible and you raise your right hand and you say, I, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, then you add that little phrase, so help me God. I would imagine most people never think about what that phrase originally meant. But what that phrase means is, and if I don't tell the truth, God can strike me dead. That's what it originally meant. Take this really seriously. So you see what God has done for us? He's made his promises to us, all of them fulfilled now in the seed of Abraham. And he's also raised his right hand by raising his son to his right hand. And he promises now to tell you the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me Son of God. That's why I have here, Jesus is God's unending oath to you and me. Unending forever. Nine, Jesus is our city of refuge. It talks about, you know, uh, uh, taking refuge, moving, uh, escaping, trying to find a place to hide toward the end of that chapter. You know, most scholars believe that writing to a Hebrew people, that what he really had in mind and they would quickly pick up on that, is, are the cities of refuge. You remember that in, in Numbers chapter 25, God said, when you lay out the land, all the different cities, he said, what you are to also are put different cities that will be de designated cities of refuge. There'll be an easy access of every Israelite, and then if, if somebody's trying to get revenge on you or, or your life is threatened and you, and you need a place for protection, you, <clears throat> you can run to a city of refuge. And as long as you get inside that city and stay there, nobody can touch you. And if you want to, you can put down roots and, and build a home and just live there. You see how that relates to Jesus, don't you? When we run to Christ, which is what he's asking them to do here, when we find our refuge in him, when we come inside the borders of all that he is and all that he's done and all that he's getting ready to do, and we decide we're going to live there, we're going to live our life in Christ. You know that phrase, in Christ, appears over 150 times in the New Testament? It means you're living in in the city of refuge, that's where your life is from now on, then you're in full protection. And you're saying, you, you, you may be persecuted. You, you may end up in the Roman arena. But if you found your refuge in Christ, in the end, nobody can touch you. You're safe and secure. It's what he says here, secure. Forever. And then number 10, oh, I think you'll like this one. He's the expert at reconnaissance. <laughs> and you say, no, wait a minute, where'd you get that in the passage? Well, it says Jesus is our forerunner. Now, I bet when you read, read that, as has been often true for me, you're, you're thinking sports, like the person out ahead maybe in a race. 
But actually, the Greek word is referring, it's a military word, it is referring to the person in an army that goes out ahead of the army and does reconnaissance. Now, you know, today they do it with drones mostly, I guess. But for most of human history, an actual person had to go out ahead, spy out the land, as it were, look for where the enemy is positioned, you know, look for the best way forward for the army to attack and so on, and then bring back the report and saying, here's, where we're, here's the best way to go, come on, let's move. Jesus is our expert at reconnaissance. He's sort of like um, Caleb and Joshua. Remember when the Israelites, and these readers would have remembered this, when the Israelites came up to the land of promise, having come out of slavery in Egypt, and now it's time, God says, go on in. They were still not sure about that, were they? So they said, well, we're going to send 12 spies. So they remember the story? They sent those 12 spies in. And when the 12 spies came back, 10 of them said, our reconnaissance tells us we better not go in there because that place is full of giants. That's what they said. They said, you know, I don't care what God says. If we go in there, we're going to be destroyed. And so they took their, their advice and they turned back and then they spent 40 years wandering in a wilderness. How good is that? But Joshua and Caleb, you remember, they came back and said, no, 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 that's not true. It's ready. The land is ready. God's made us ready. There are houses we have not built waiting for us. There are vineyards we have not planted waiting for us. God, he's had, you know, 400 years to get it ready. And now we're here. Let, let's go on in. They did the reconnaissance, and they knew it was good to go. Jesus has done the reconnaissance. He searched out the very holy of holies. He searched out every corner of this universe. And he can take us where it is safe to go. He'll lead us where we can take, take charge, take hold, lay claim. And come out victorious. He's an expert at reconnaissance. And the message he brings back to us is, come follow me. I know exactly where we're going. And number 11, he's our anchor of hope. That's what it says. We have our hope in him, and it's like an anchor behind the veil. Um, now, you know, a ship needs an anchor you often particularly because it, it's in an unstable situation like being battered by a storm. So you drop the anchor into the ground, it, 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 or into the bed of, of the ocean, it, it hooks on, and it helps to hold the ship in place until the storm has passed. Well, these people are in the midst of a storm, and they've got an anchor too, but their anchor doesn't go down, their anchor goes up. <laughs> and it doesn't hook into the earth, it hooks into glory, it hooks into heaven. It hooks into the promises of God. And that anchor isn't just a metal piece. It is the Son of God. He's our anchor. And we're chained to Him. We are chained to Him, not just individually. This church, with all the instabilities we've been experiencing these last few weeks, we have never ceased to be anchored to the Son of God behind the veil, which means that the very ultimate presence of God on our behalf, holding us fast, but not just, not just holding us in position. Because it's hooked into heaven, it's actually taking us that direction. This is a different kind of anchor. You know, like Paul says, I press on to lay hold of everything for which Christ has laid hold of me. I'm anchored in him, and I want more of him as a result. So this anchor pulls me on. He says, forgetting the things that are behind and looking to the things that are before, I press on to lay hold of God's upward calling to me in Christ Jesus. And that's for individuals. That's also for a whole congregation of God's people like I'm looking at in this room right now. Jesus is our anchor for our hope forever. 
Well, let's go back and review where we've been so far. You'll see the graphic uh, up on the, uh, on the screen. So far, we've seen that Jesus is the goal of our growth. He's what we're headed toward, how, what we'll become, will we become like him and all the rest. Yeah. He's the goal of our growth. He's the daylight and sometimes blinding daylight for our times of darkness. He is heaven's greatest gift. There's nothing beyond him. He's the focus of the ministry of the Spirit. He's the embodiment of all the goodness of God promised in His Word. He is the power of the future present among us right now. He is the, uh, he's the, the blessing of Abraham all in Jesus. He's also God's unending vow to us that that blessing will take place. He's our city of refuge. He's our expert at reconnaissance. We need not fear to follow him. He's our anchor of hope. Now, I said to you there were 12, didn't I? And that's 11 so far. Before I give you 11, and I'm right on time, so don't panic. Before I give you 11, I want to tell you this story. You know, the Bible says we're involved in spiritual warfare. The whole world, it says, lies in the hands of the evil one. That's the end of 1 John chapter 5. But we who are followers of Jesus, we're involved in spiritual warfare. Paul says in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness, against rulers in the evil places. I mean, uh, there, there are two worlds here. There's the one you see and the one you don't see. Both are real. Both are part of God's creation. And in both worlds, there, there are good things and there are good personalities and there are evil personalities in both. And the evil personalities in the invisible world have it in their mind above everything else to destroy a work of Christ. Whether it be in your life individually or in the life of a whole church. That's their, that, that's their major mission. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, you've got to put on the whole armor of God. There's no other way to win in this battle. I've had times over the years, I've been in ministry for 50 years, so you can imagine, many of those times I've been like at the, what you call the front lines of the advancing of the, of the gospel, where, where the warfare can get pretty rough. I've gone through some times of spiritual warfare, but this past week, I went through something unlike anything I've ever experienced before. It was so profound, so overwhelming, so invisible, and yet so real. I, I still have not been able to describe it to Robin, to my wife, and I usually am able to share everything with her. I can't find the words. All I know is I was engulfed for a season in a darkness not of my making. And I often think of it this week as a drowning man, and you're under the water, and then every once in a while you, you, you fight your way to the surface, and you come and go, ah, you get a breath of air, and then, then it all drags you back down again. That's sort of what I went through for a number of hours. And when I came up for air, the only thing I could do was praise Jesus for who he is, because I knew I had no other hope. All the things we've been learning to grab onto some of that, so even though I kept going back under, there was a sense that it's going to end and I'm going to come out on top. And I share that with you to say, brothers and sisters, this is serious business as that woman in Vermont learned about what happens when there are torrential downpours. This is serious business. It's a joyful thing to follow the Lord, but we're in the midst of a battle. This church is under spiritual warfare. In a way, and I've been here 30 years, unlike what I think I've ever witnessed before, at least on, on this level. 
And the only hope we have is to come up for air and, and breathe in as much of Christ as we can gain. Which leads me then to the, to, to the twelfth and final snapshot, and that is that Jesus is the reign of God on us. Now, I'm playing with words there, obviously. Reign, R-A-I-N, reign, R-E-I-G-N. Jesus is God saturating us with the reign, the supremacy, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he says here is, you end up in one of two directions when you start getting saturated with Jesus. You either start bearing fruit or you start bearing thorns. There's no middle ground. And if you don't take it all in and let it begin to develop in you fruit, then you start becoming an infertile soil. And all I know is what I see, I read here, I mean, there's, you can discuss if you want. It says, then that land gets burned. In other words, it, it, it serves no useful purpose anymore. You know, there's a movement in New York City right now. It's been going on for a few years, spread to other cities, down in the Philadelphia. In New York, it's called Saturate New York. You can look it up, read about it. I really suggest you Google it. Millions of people in New York City have been given the gospel over the last five or six years, literally, face-to-face. This has actually happened, and it's spreading And the whole idea of Saturate New York, with which I've been working quite a bit, is the motto, which is, saturate the people of God with the supremacy of Christ so that they will saturate their communities with the gospel of Christ. And the whole key word is saturation. And so I have this question I want to leave for you. What if we allowed the Holy Spirit what if we welcomed? What if we invited? What if we started a work of prayer where we're saying to the, to the Father at heaven, would you please, by the Spirit of God, saturate my life and saturate this church with all that Jesus is, and we only know a little part of what that is. Give us more and more of his unsearchable riches. What, what do you think could happen to you personally in your walk with Jesus? What do you think could happen in the life of of this church because as John Piper says if we do not move in that direction there will be ultimately shipwreck father I just thank you so much for this beautiful audience I praise you for how they've been willing to welcome these words I sense the openness in their hearts I know your spirit's been working in here. He sure has been doing something inside of me right now, even as I'm speaking. And you who have begun a good work, you always want to bring it to completion. So I pray now in Jesus' name that you will saturate us with the fullness of his supremacy, the wonders of his glory, the power of his risen life, the wholeness of his love. And may he become for all of us, individually together, the ultimate fulfillment of our lives. Not for our sakes alone, ultimately for his glory. Amen.